This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Thanks, everyone, for taking the time to join us on today. And as always, a special welcome and greetings to those of you who are joining and partaking of the podcast for the first time. Welcome. We are in a bit of a segue. We just finished celebrating our two-year anniversary. We also just finished a series where we focused on UX mentoring. What is mentoring? What is it really? What does it mean to UXers? What's critical about it? We we spent five weeks covering that. And I've got a couple shows in the hopper that I still need to do some work on before we share it. So we got some great input, some great content, some great thought leadership from some other people in the discipline that we want to share with you in the not too distant future. But today, we're going to sort of go back to our potpourri time where that this is what we do when we're when we're getting into a segue. I just cover some questions and answers from people that that I interact with on social media, people who take the time to write me and ask me different questions when we are taking a little bit of a break in between different series and different topics. And and sometimes we spend time talking about hot topics. I think tonight uh, it's nighttime where I am right now where I'm recording this and you might hear uh, a lot of loud bangs and noises in the background because people are celebrating the 4th of July. So uh, I'll apologize in advance for what might be become a little noisy, but we'll see how good my audio equipment is because it also might it might cut that stuff off and you might you might not hear it. But we're going to blend a little bit between the hot topics in in the world of UX today, as well as some questions that I've been getting from people. And I think that the three questions that I have set aside to cover on tonight are things that happen to be really hot topics. And a lot of people are thinking about it. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, this is probably going to be a, a shorter show, or at least that's what I'm expecting. Uh, but that's always okay. Um, question number one, let's get right to it. Question number one, someone reached out to me and they asked me what I consider to be a good place for newcomers to learn about UX. And and I think this is a great question for many reasons because you have a lot of people who are interested in getting into UX. They're curious about UX. Some people have already made the decision. They've already count the costs. They recognize that they feel that they're, they're pretty much made for this discipline. That's a good place for them. And so, but the question for them is, where do I start? And one of the things I'm going to touch on here was, was really not part of my answer for this, not, not my full-fledged answer, but I just think it's something that needs to be covered. And if for those of you who have heard my talk on the trouble with UX education, you'll hear me make reference to the different options that are out here. Some people won't ask the question. They'll just dive right in and they'll, they'll go to the university route. Some people are looking for something a little simpler. They don't, they don't want to, to spend the money 
on a degree, no matter how long the degree takes, some people just don't want to spend that time. They don't want to spend that money. And, and, and I'm going to caution people about the time thing. If you, if you want to learn about UX, if you want to learn about anything and you want to microwave it, if you want to go too fast, you're setting yourself up for some gross disappointments because if you move too fast, if you're trying to achieve success too fast, especially when you consider the fact that patience is a critical, it's like a currency in UX. You have to be patient. And so I understand if you don't want to spend the money on a degree program. A lot of people don't. They can't afford it, don't want to do it, don't want the student loans, whatever, whatever the reasons are. We respect that. We understand it. But there are options out here for everybody. But please, the time thing, please throw that out because that should not be a factor. If you learn fast, you're going to sacrifice something. Learning fast usually means you're going to sacrifice quality. If you sacrifice quality, then you are going to put yourself out there. And after you finish with whatever that program might be, you're going to put yourself out there. And then you have anybody who's applying to any job. It doesn't matter what that job is, what the discipline is. Anybody who's trying to get a job in a particular type or line of work, you always offer a value proposition. That's what the application process is. That's what the interview process is. People are checking to see what value do you bring to the table. And when you try to do this too fast, the thing that you are sacrificing is quality. And so when you sacrifice quality, when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to your acumen, when it comes to several different things, when you sacrifice quality and you go to make a value proposition and that value proposition lacks quality, then those people are not going to be sold on you. And that's one of the reasons why so many people are struggling to find UX jobs because they do not offer a sound enough value proposition. So please, please, please throw time out. Let's not include time as part of this. But, okay, back to the main part uh, of the answer. You, some people, again, might go that route. So learning, if you're a newcomer, you want to learn, and you can't afford it, and you're interested, and you want the accountability, and you want to go to an accredited institution, and you want that value and all those, those pluses that come along with going through a degree program, then now you got to sit and you got to evaluate what those different programs have to offer because all degree programs are not created equal. And I'm not going to spend a bunch of time there today. Matter of fact, some degree programs are outright awful, (laughs) even though you're paying all this money and this is supposed to be coming through an accredited institution. Remember, a lot of people don't know what UX is. And so if people who don't know what UX is are trying to, to structure a program to educate UXers, do you really think that <laughs> that, that program is going to offer you a lot? Uh, I, I talked before about an institution that on their marketing page for their UX master's program say things on their marketing page that are blatantly false, such as you need to be a unicorn in order to succeed. They say that on their marketing page. So you should know, and we're going to cover this today too, you'll see where I'm going in a little bit, that that's a red flag and you got to get good at recognizing red flags in order to, to ensure your own safety. And and I'll, I'll talk about that again in a little bit, but 
that's a red flag to not go to that institution. Nobody should be enrolling at that institution because that's just one red flag that I'm mentioning. There are several others, and I went to that school once in, in, in my past, so not a good thing to do. But at any rate, so we, we address the degree people, but let, let, let's, let's look at this from the perspective of people that aren't going to degree programs. I, I've given those little tidbits, but let's move on from that. A good place for newcomers to learn about UX. I have three that I want to point out. And, and these, again, they have nothing to do with speed. They have to do with, hey, I'm trying to learn more about initially. And you can always, if you're interested in a, a degree program, you can still do these things and still do those things later. So please keep that in mind. And, and I said three, actually four. There's there's four things that I want to, to present to you as options to learn about UX. The first one, and these are something that you can get into without a, a heavy price tag. So if money is the object, these things will cost you very little and will give you a nice return on investment uh, based on what it is that you're 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 investing in from a from a money perspective and the time that you do put into it. It should you should get something out of it. I mean, people talk about going to the Google program because they say it'll give a good foundation. These foundations that I'm going to talk about here, they're not like the Google program because two things are not happening. Number one, there's no risk with any of them. <laughs> not really. You don't have a risk. There's a huge risk in, in, get, in going through the Google program, especially when people are like telling you things. Anytime somebody says something and they're misleading you, anytime somebody offers you education, but then they won't hire people to come through their own program, this is a problem. So we want to, again, more red flags. The, the, there are always risks that go along with education, but the risks that will be associated with the ones I'm about to, to present to you uh, are minimal to none uh, in some cases. So place number one, and this one actually is similar to the Google program in that the assignments are peer graded. And that is the course that is offered through University of Michigan and Coursera. You can actually go to the University of Michigan site and get to the course without getting to Coursera, actually, which I think is interesting. But still, it's nice to know that U of M offering a course through Coursera, same type of, of content, same type of foundational elements, many, minimal uh, investment from a cost perspective. Here's what sets U of M apart from Coursera. I mean, do people really, it, it be, wouldn't it be interesting, let me digress for a moment. Wouldn't it be interesting if you could see what a program had to offer and you didn't know the name behind the program and then evaluate and make decisions based on that, not knowing who, because I guarantee you, if, if the Google name was not listed in association with their program, people would look for other for other programs. They're, they, they are, they're paying for the name Google the same way you might pay for a TV because it says Sony on it. And you're going to get uh, certain things you're going to get because of what you're paying for, but you could get the same thing or better for less money a lot of times. And the same thing applies here. So just, just to digress and throw that out there, here's the plus about the U of M program, even though both have peer graded assignments, and people turn in blank work in both and say, hey, please give me a passing grade. 
I just want to get through this. You, you have people who go through these programs fraudulently, but the fact that people go through the programs fraudulently, you would hope that they'd have better checks and balances in place, but that is still something that's on the, that's the responsibility of the corrupt student that's trying to fake their way through something instead of doing the work and actually learning. The program itself, the way that the U of M and Coursera program is structured, it has proper pedagogy, it has proper andragogy, so it, it takes adult learning principles into account, and that's the andragogical part of it. It has proper structure, proper curriculums, proper activities, that's the, 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 the pedagogical aspect of it. But the thing is, U of M and Coursera, that course, is provided through and with the backing of an accredited institution. Google does not offer that. So that's why I recommend that people go through it. I've talked to people who have completed it. They have confirmed certain things that we're not big fans of, such as the the peer grading and things like that. However, they did talk about how it really helped them to get started, They and then they proved it. They talked about the structure. They have actual instructors, people who actually are our college professors that are actually taking you through the learning experience. So for that reason, that's one place for someone to get started. Number two on my list is the Interaction Design Foundation. And so with the Interaction Design Foundation, you pay either a monthly fee or you pay an annual fee. You have access to the entire learning library through IDF, that's interaction-design.org. That's how you get to the Interaction Design Foundation. You can take their courses. They are all self-paced. What I like about them, even though they, they've been doing a few things that might be questionable lately, and a lot of people are calling them out about it. What I like about the Interaction Design Foundation is that these things are already structured. Their courses are already structured. So it's not like it, it's, it's an advancement beyond what would happen if you were just doing self-learning. At least you have some structure that's already there. You have a path that's already established. And so you'll get through it faster than if you were doing things from a self-learning or a self-taught perspective. But you do get to do it at your own pace. So it's a little bit more well, convenient. Uh, it, and it will not break the bank at all. And the Interaction Design Foundation, the thing I love about them is that they have been the keeper of sound trustworthy information about the discipline for a very long time. And a couple of things that they've done that start to get a little questionable aside, it is still a reputable source if you're trying to learn and get off the ground and have a viable place to go and get information to begin to lay that foundation for one's own UX journey. So so that is something that is really is really critical today. Resource number three, David Travis, who is a fantastic UX practitioner and who wrote the book, Think Like a UX Researcher, also has a couple of really great courses for beginners on Udemy. Uh, one of them is called The Ultimate Guide to Usability in UX, and it's roughly 79 US dollars or so. And he has a course called How to Carry Out a Usability Expert Review. And so that course, I'm going to double back here and double check because I don't want to get anything wrong on the pricing here. That's $49.99 U.S. dollars. Again, yeah, the other course is $79.99 U.S. dollars. But this gentleman is an absolute gem and a treasure to the U.S. community. And so 
just to get your feet wet, just to lay a nice foundation, not $79 a month, it's $79 and that's it. You're done and you're going to get viable, trustworthy information that you can tap into that will really, really, really help you along and lay that initial foundation as a UX professional. So this is really key. And then number four, my, my number four recommendation on this topic is with eCornell. Cornell University has a certificate program. You do not have to have a degree to get into this program. And they introduce you to UX design and UX research. It's a basic program that only takes a few months. It usually, the whole thing prices out at about $3,600. And sometimes they offer even a discount, so it's even less than that. This is another program offered through an accredited university. You don't have the self-grading component that exists with U of M and Coursera, you have that accountability factor that's there and you get to learn things that are gonna be critical to you in laying a sound foundation in the discipline and you get to have Cornell on your resume, which is a selling point. That's one of the reasons folks go to the universities, folks, because it, it's a selling point. Whereas some people, when they see Google on your resume, hiring managers, they will disqualify you because they see that. They'll disqualify you, some hiring managers will disqualify you if they see that you got educated at a boot camp. So again, when people go to these universities, they're paying for something beyond what you think they're paying for. And and that's the, the right to not have your resume balled up and, and filed in uh, uh, over in file number 13 over there in the, in, the, in the round trash can because they don't think that you have a good value proposition. So just some things to keep in mind, great places to get started when it comes to learning. Topic number two that we want to cover on tonight. Uh, someone had mentioned to me, I talk about the need for having a filter uh, in UX. And, and so someone was saying, well, okay, well, okay, I get it. I, you say I need a filter. Well, how do I develop a filter? And, and can you re really clarify what is a filter? Well, when I'm talking about filters, think about a fish tank. For those of you who've ever had an aquarium, you have to have a filter. And that filter helped to keep the, the water as clean as possible. Or maybe from a human perspective, you've had a water pitcher and that water pitcher or you have a filter that's that's attached to your water. So you when you turn on and run the water, you're getting filtered water. And, and so what's going on with these filters? What's really going on? They are means of protection. They're a means of keeping people safe. They're a means of removing uh, uh, sediments or detrimental elements and keep them from getting through so you can drink the and be exposed to the best possible product in the end. And so filters, when it comes to having a filter in UX, filters help us. They're, they're really a, a thing that's birthed out of critical thinking and academic thinking that causes us to question things and, and put forth efforts to validate things so that we're only embracing something that is viable, something that's trustworthy, something that's useful, something that's practical, and not just believing everything that you see and hear, which is interesting. I, I've said this before. There was no misinformation in UX prior to 2011. Since 2011, it's been just this huge uptick where now we're being overrun with misinformation in UX. And, and it's really going to another level. I, I talk about the trolls sometimes. They're part of the misinformation a bit because the problem, the epidemic, because they're always saying things that are not true. 
They never prove anything. If you try to prove something to them, they dismiss themselves from the conversation because they really don't want truth. They just want to start trouble. Here's the issue with the trolls. They say things that aren't true and they leave destruction in their path. If you have a filter, you will become better at identifying what's right and what's not. You won't be afraid to identify what's right and what's not, which a lot of people are, frankly, today. But when you believe everything that that you see and hear, you have no filter at that point. So when you think about the benefits of the filter being safe, safety, when you think about eliminating detrimental factors, I, I hope you can understand the need for having that filter. But again, the question is, how do I develop a filter? So we, we, I mean, we know what a filter is. We know what it does, uh, but how you develop it. That's the, that's the tough part of this because I mentioned earlier, you got to have patience. You got to have it. You know that without a filter, everything gets through and then you suffer the associated consequences. So how do you develop a filter? It develops naturally. As you grow in knowledge and skill, as you lay a proper foundation and learn through a proper source, an authentic, a genuine, a viable source, your filter will automatically develop. So when you grow in knowledge or you grow in skill, your acumen just continues to improve. You become more picky. You become uh, it becomes easy for you to recognize what's good and what's not, what's dangerous and what's not, what's ludicrous and and what's not. So as your critical and academic thinking improves, you're going to be more careful about what you partake of and you're going to be more careful about what you approve of. And when you really have that empathy, when you're truly an empath, you're, you'll care about how other people are impacted and you won't want them to partake of something that's detrimental to them as well. So that helps the discipline as a whole. When we look out for one another, as we should, the discipline benefits, and, and that's a whole other topic on its own right there. So that's topic number two. You want to develop a filter? They develop naturally. There's nothing you can do to go and accelerate that per se. You just have to be patient, and you got to ride that out but you want to continue to learn the right things. You want to continue to digest the right things. And as you do that, you'll say, oh, you know what? They told me that they're guaranteeing me a job. Nobody can guarantee me a job. See, that's the filter at work. And then you know not to partake of that particular that particular source. There's a problem with that source. And then you, you become more selective. That's one of the other words I left out there. You become more selective about what you partake of and you benefit accordingly. So that's topic number two for today. Our final topic, number three, someone said that they've heard me talk about the four pillars of UX, but, and, and they get it, they, they digested it and, and they understand. But the question was, what's the proper order to learn them? Is there, is there an order here that is, how can we say better suited? for the learner is what they were, were they, what they were getting at. Is there, is there a way, I mean, should I learn number three versus number two? What, 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 what's, is there a way to proceed with these? And so I'm going to sum the whole thing up. So here are the four pillars that I talk about when I have my talk on the landscape of UX, or you see my illustration that that's circulating around the world for several years. Now, those four pillars are heuristics and usability. I grouped them together as one. Pillar number two is information architecture. 
Pillar number three, the way I list it in the illustration is UX research. And pillar number four is a, another combination, interaction design principles and interface design. And what people like to call UI, that, that's in that fourth pillar. Now, which ones are more prerequisite oriented? Is there a prerequisite? Is there, a, if I approach one versus the other, will I be better off? That's what the person was, was getting at in the question. And the answer to that question, I thought it was a fantastic question and no one has ever presented that to me before. The answer to the question is yes, there is a way to proceed. And it, it's sort of implied in the illustration, but I never really talk about it. So we'll clear that up right here. Number one, heuristics and usability must be learned first. Heuristics are common conventions, proven principles, best practices, things that we learn, things that, that we know are proven, things that we know to be solid. Heuristics are uh, an absolute gem. They're gold in that we, in, in looking at proven principles and best practices and common conventions, we know what works in any user experience. It's already been proven through research, and, and there's already a bunch of data that says that these things work, these things don't, and those things inform, they become our heuristics. And so by knowing the heuristics, and then heuristics and usability go together because usability is based on heuristics. When you really take a look at it, something that is optimized in its, use, in its usefulness and someone's ability to partake of it to find tasks or whatever it is that they're trying to do, they all are tied to some type of heuristics somewhere. So that's why I don't separate the two. When you take the time to learn those things first, learn about what works, learn about what doesn't. Uh, back in the day, a lot of us learned how to do good design by looking at bad design. And when you looked at that bad design, they became heuristically informing if you will, you could look at those things and you found out, okay, make sure we always do this. Make sure you never, ever, ever do that. Uh, and, and so when you learn these heuristics, you begin to use them all the time. They inform designs. They, they will help to optimize what you choose to research because you don't necessarily have to research something that's already heuristically proven, though there are times that you should do it. But these things are really, really critical. So we want to make sure that we learn heuristics and usability first. That always has to be something that's on our radar. Next up, the order, information architecture. And the reason for that is that information architecture, there are three major components in information architecture. One is nomenclature, how things are labeled, whether it's in the navigation, whether it's a label on a button, whether it's the, the headings that you have in, in your content, and that's where they have that information architecture and content strategy overlap. And a lot of people keep referring to that as UX writing, but it's really information architecture and content strategy stuff, Really, and, and, which is funny because information architecture has been like cast off. But at any rate, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna, I don't want to go on a tangent here. Nomenclature, how things are labeled is a part. How things are grouped, taxonomies, that's a huge part of information architecture. And the two of them together, the result of those two things is what we call an information sent or cues. And so through the way things are labeled and the way things are grouped, 
whether it's just finding information or completing tasks, we have the, the, the building blocks of findability, which is the product of information architecture. Every information architecture, whether it's good or bad, renders find something findable or not findable. And so if it's successful, then findability is optimized. If it's not successful, findability becomes very difficult and in some cases impossible. So the more we know about heuristics and usability, it can inform what we do with information architecture. And then these are two critical building blocks to putting together a sound user experience. Now, if you've seen my illustration before, you will think that UX research is number three. It actually isn't. Because if you want to be a researcher, but you don't know anything about heuristics and usability, information architecture and interaction design principles and interface design, how in the world are you designing your research? People are going to just start spitballing and putting things together instead of having the benefit of building on those other three pillars. So for that reason, there are interaction design principles, things that inform how interaction design should be executed, how it should be presented. Many of them happen to be heuristics. So when you learn about heuristics, you're already, you have a head start when it comes to those interaction design principles, but you need to have those things fully in tow before you start working on interface design, because if you don't know the principles, if you don't know the heuristics and usability, if you don't know information architecture, that interface design is not gonna be very good. So, and the principles, because people are interacting with the interface, they need to be in place before you even get to the UI. And a lot of people who are doing UI design and don't know these things, well, that explains why it looks good, but it doesn't work good. And looking good doesn't mean that it's gonna work well. So. So something else to keep in mind. UX research is number four. Because now, remember, it's UX research. We're doing research that supports UX initiatives. So there's a good up to 125 methods, methodologies, techniques, and deliverables associated with UX research. But the things that take place in the heuristics and usability level, information architecture, interaction design principles, and interface design, when we know these things, when we understand these things, now it puts us in a better position to design and structure research so that we can gain actionable data that informs or validates design efforts. So UX research is number four. So learn things, strive to learn things in that order. Yes, there's gonna be some overlap. It's okay for there to be overlap. And we welcome you to that. Go ahead and let it overlap, but, but keep your 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 radar out for these different factors and continue to build your own personal ux maturity by optimizing these four areas and you'll be in a good position so folks that's it for this week's potpourri just three key topics that came up hot topics as well as things that people have been asking me about over the course of the last two weeks so I want to make sure to stress these things and give folks some insights and send me some feedback. Let me know. I mean, people reach out on LinkedIn all the time. Let me know how these things work out for you. Let me know if you have any additional questions. I'd be more than happy to cover these in the future. So, but until next time, folks, that is all the time we have for today. It is time to sign off. So until next time, this is the host of the World of UX podcast, Darren Hood. Happy UXing, everybody.
Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.